Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's a big day here at Squawk Box as we launch a new podcast. What does that do exactly? Do you? How does it? Audio. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Here's what we're squawking about today. We work just doesn't work. The parent company, uh, we could lay off as many as four to 5,000 employees. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb on the vaping crisis. This opportunity um, may not be redeemable. Who gets what? The man with the hardest job in the world, victims' compensation expert Ken Feinberg, on working with Boeing. What you learn from the families in a case like this, skepticism. And this buds for you, Anheuser-Busch InBev CEO Carlos Brito on microfinance in the developing world. The only source of credit is us. We've got those stories and much more. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Wednesday, September 25th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, go please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on our podcast today, the story that just keeps getting stranger. Office sharing company WeWork's wild ride to Wall Street. WeWork's co-founder Adam Newman is officially stepping down from his role as CEO. He had faced questions, of course, over his leadership style, use of company funds, his control over a startup once valued at $47 $47 billion. That valuation has shrunk to about $15 billion just in a matter of weeks after that botched plan to go public. In a statement, Newman saying, quote, I am so proud of this team and the incredible company that we have built over the last decade. While our business has never been stronger in recent weeks, the scrutiny directed towards me has become a significant distraction. And I've decided that it's in the best interest of the company to step down as chief executive. Investors have expressed concern that Newman exercised too much control over the company through special voting shares. Each of his shares will now have a uh, three votes down from 20 votes per share earlier this year. We works uh, Artie Minson, formerly the co-president, co-CFO, and Sebastian Gunningham, uh, Gunningham uh, previously vice chairman, have been named co-CEOs. Of the company, though, we should tell you that according to one person briefed on the matter, the parent company, uh, we could lay off as many as four to five thousand employees as part of all of this. And uh, I have been told that um, despite the protestations of the company publicly, uh, there may be a search uh, attempt for a new CEO. So they named oh, two CEOs, yeah. uh, but there yeah, are they invest- named two and said that they were the the, they were the ones, internal but, picks. Yeah, uh, but there are outside investors. Uh, who seem to really want to bring in an outside operator and try to credentialize that outside operator with additional money. Of course, the big question I should say about all of this is what happens to SoftBank? That's Mm -hmm. still a huge issue. They're in the process of raising that $100 billion fund uh, based in large part off of the back of some of the valuation when it was much higher. So that's an issue. Uh, There's the issue ongoing. I wrote about it uh, today about J.P. Morgan's role in all of this. Jamie Dimon trying to clean up uh, this situation, but uh, not a situation I, I think any of them are particularly proud of or would want to otherwise be in. 
Did I read it correctly that SoftBank has put $15 billion into this company and that's basically the valuation at this point? They've put in about 10. T- 10. They've been in, so to the extent that some people believe the valuation of the whole company 10, is 10, there right. are, and there, there are people who have that, that view of the world as well. Right. It would have been worse if it was IPO'd at $47 billion by J.P. Morgan and, and it was And the public worth, was holding the bag. It was Look, depending on, right. By the way, right, the very generous, sympathetic view on J.P. Morgan's role in all this would be to say the IPO process worked. Uh, they forced the company to be transparent and disclose right. all of these various conflicts, and the public was not left holding the bag. That is the, uh, and that is a view that was has been espoused to me as I've been writing and thinking about this issue on around J.P. Morgan's role in this. But at the same time, as you know, J.P. Morgan was lending Adam Newman uh, money, uh, collateralized about five hundred million dollars, collateralized against his stock, which he then used to buy buildings, uh, stakes in buildings, which then. We work, which J.P. Morgan was also lending money to, was then leasing. So, is he uh, even mo- worth five hundred million dollars at this point? I mean, or is that that's a good question? Or is that money that J.P. Morgan's now on the hook for? Got to be worth more than that. I think it's pro- I, well. probably more than that. But by the way, the loaning uh, process that J.P. Morgan was involved in started back in two thousand fifteen, I and mean, they there was a, a one point they led a one point two. Not liquid, but he's got uh, about credit line to WeWork. So this Maybe. Is been, I mean, but well, if SoftBank put point. in $10 billion and right. the company's worth $10 billion. Well, right. like we're, but they don't own a hundred. They, their $10 billion is only worth $2 billion now or something. So he, he's, how much the, does he have? He has a lot of the voting, but I don't know how much he has right. in the actual. I don't, you know what? I don't know the answer. Company. I don't know the answer. got to have more than $500 million. I mean, what was it all about if that's all he has? I mean. <laughs> there's but not going to be any billionaires voting, anymore anyway. His voting power Bernie was says 20 to 1, so right. I don't know how much of the actual right, stock but he's got, I'm sure he's got, a, he's got a stake in the How much is a stake in the company? That's what, no idea. We'll, well, we've got to figure what, it I'm, out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a look. We'll I will tell you. the end of the show. Look, he, he's probably bought, I think, something on the order of about 60 or $80 million of properties literally in the past... 18 months. And when I say properties, personal homes. Oh, um, I thought he was leasing them all back. Not because he was leasing back to the company. No, no, no. <laughs> then, there, then there are the stakes in the, in the he buildings. Does B, he does Airbnb with company the, people. Then there are the stakes <laughs> in the building as well. So. Right. House Speaker uh, Nancy Pelosi launching a formal impeachment inquiry of President Trump. It's become a market story. Joining us for that is Binky Chata, chief global strategist at Deutsche Bank. Mike Santoli, a CNBC a senior markets commentator. Um, you were at Barron's during the last one, I think. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm probably the only one that remembers Nixon. I remember that really. I remember Agnew mm-hmm. in, in the IRS. Uh, Binky might remember it too anyway. Binky, I think you think at this point, slowing growth and, and the markets being, in your view, 15% overvalued, probably takes precedence over all this noise. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's really two points I would make. I would say if you think about how domestic political and, you know, really more broadly geopolitical risks have played out in the equity market historically, it is really two simple things. One is there is usually clearly a sharp sell-off, but, you know, we're talking about 6% on average. Uh, But the most important point is that it's very temporary. It's very short-lived. The average is three weeks down, three weeks back up. And you're saying if if something were to worsen from here, 
Mm-hmm. We're not there yet. We didn't get a 6% sell-off on, on, on this. No, uh, uh, because I would argue yesterday's political news, and that is not my forte, is okay. uh, you know, a marginal incremental negative. Uh, but, but, but the simple point I'm trying to make is, you know, a, a sharp but short-lived sell-offs. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the equity market has always basically gone back to okay. it, 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 what's, you know, it, 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 what the economy and earnings are basically it, Which saying. you're not thrilled with, uh, the way that's going. But let uh, me just, currently, uh, no. Yes. Yeah, let me just get, get Mike uh, on the. Woke up yesterday morning, at, you know, after thinking about it the night before, and checked it, I checked Predict It. Which, sure. and, and, the, and it's very thin right now. There's not a lot of money uh, being bet. Uh, but yesterday morning, I, I, I sort of thought if, we, if there was a true constitutional crisis, we wouldn't have been up 120 points. Right. Um, by the end of the day, we were down, what, not that much, 0.5%? Yeah, something. about a half percent. About a half a percent. Uh, the predicted numbers are the, the finishing the term is still ninety percent. The, the impeachment is yeah. it, it went to fifty-seven. I think it's back below fifty. Yeah. At this point, what's interesting is the market did pick up a little bit from the lows when the president said he would release the transcript of the call. So there was a little bit of sensitivity to trying to figure out how this plays out. I mean, honestly, this isn't, I don't think, one of the top three swing factors for how the market's going to... Not even the top do. three? No, I really don't. Well, the top three are probably all the same. Which Have, is, you, seen the the newspaper? Have you seen the newspapers today? But what exactly should the market be pricing in? Right. So here's the distinction between the, the Nixon experience and Clinton. They were both in a second term. Yes. So I think it's a little early for the market on a day-to-day basis to be handicapping the outcome of the 2020 election based on what's going on right now. Because as you say, the odds for... President Trump finishing his term and predicted is still 90 Yeah, but the, the, the issue that the, this wraps up the top two candidates, yeah. the, the, the Republican and the Democratic candidate in this, and that's just People think Warren's already ahead. That's... You right. Think? But so it's it's so but, but, but then then what? So what should yeah. the market be pricing about that? Should the market be saying it's going to bum out the public? I guess we don't know. It's what already bummed see, out. Yeah, right? right. The consumer confidence yesterday showed this huge plunge in 55 and over people 55 and over in consumer confidence. They're the ones absorbing cable news all that. Vaping is today like many days in the news again. The Massachusetts governor declaring a public health emergency and announcing a ban on the sale of vaping products for four months. Illinois is also considering a ban on some products. Yesterday, during a hearing on Capitol Hill, the CDC urged people not to use the products at all until more is known about a mysterious lung disease that has killed nine people and sickened more than 500. Amid all this pressure on the e-cig industry, let's talk about Juul. They're the market leader, and more than 80% of Juul's sales are from the controversial flavored e-cigarettes, something that many people say applies to kids. During Squawk Box this morning, the company announced that the CEO is stepping down. Here's Becky Quick on the breaking news. Dr. Scott Gottlieb was the head of the FDA and was the first to really crack down on what he saw in terms of vaping and some of the e-cigarettes. He led the attack on on, on Juul and kind of pushing back and saying that they could not be marketing to children because you have seen a bit of an epidemic that's broken out in the United States because of what happened there. Uh, Dr. Gottlieb joins us right now to talk about these latest developments. And uh, Dr. Gottlieb, thank you for being here, first of all. We are just hearing about a lot of this news as you were sitting down in the chair what, what do you think about where things stand right now? Um, again, being the person who really started looking into the marketing towards children to begin with. Well, I think we have two crises right now. One crisis is the epidemic of youth use of e-cigarettes generally. And this is, has been going on for some time now. We saw a 78% increase last year and then about another 30% increase this year on top of that of kids using e-cigarettes. Um, and that's a crisis born of the access and appeal that these products have to kids. And it's driven primarily by 
the legally sold products like Juul and Enjoy, um, which kids are using to buy in convenience stores. The other crisis that we have right now are these acute lung injuries. And the two crises are not um, completely disconnected. If we didn't have so many kids using e-cigarettes, we wouldn't have kids put at risk for these acute lung injuries. But it's not clear that these acute lung injuries are being caused by the legally sold regulated products, which FDA does oversee the manufacture of. It appears that many of these acute lung injuries are being driven by illegal products that have oils in them that are causing things like lipoid pneumonia. Because the, the legally sold products... The legitimate products are typically water-soluble. They might cause hypersensitivity reactions. They certainly cr cause chronic lung injury. They're not safe. Um, we believe they're less harmful than combusting tobacco and smoking regular cigarettes. But in the most cases, it doesn't appear that the legitimate products are what are causing these uh, cases of acute lung injury that we're seeing. Scott, can I ask you about one of the headlines that we, we just read, and I'm hoping you can help interpret this for me. Uh, Philip Morris and Altria ending their discussions for merger talks. We knew that that had grown more complicated because of Altria's 35 percent interest that it bought in Juul last year. Uh, but in that announcement, they also go on to say that they are going to be launching on a product called IQOS. Uh, they say it's the only heated tobacco product with pre-market authorization, including two menthol variants from the U.S. FDA, which followed the agency's rigorous science-based review, leading it to determine that authorizing the product for sale in the United States is appropriate for the protection of public health. How much do you know about IQOS or ICOS, whatever you might right. call it? So ICOS was approved recently by FDA. It's, a heat, it's called heat not burn. It's basically a cigarette that you put in a device that heats the cigarette but doesn't combust it. Um, and they brought forward data to show that it's not as harmful as lighting tobacco on fire. Again, not safe, but for a currently addicted adult smoker, it could be a less harmful alternative for a smoker who still wants to get access to nicotine from something that resembles a cigarette. I think the key here is to remember that Philip Morris went through the regulatory process, spent years doing it, probably spent hundreds of millions of dollars doing it, um, but it demonstrates that that regulatory process can work for demonstrating that certain new tobacco products can get to market and can prove that they're necessary for the protection of the public health and helping currently addicted adult smokers quit. So far, as far as I know, no vaping company, no e-cigarette company has been willing to engage that process and file an application. So, you know, the process is open to them. They could have done this years ago. We asked them to do it years ago. Um, the, the invitation's been out there for them to file for approval. And I think the fact that they haven't engaged the regulatory process and file applications makes them very vulnerable now as these lung injuries pop up. And, you know, critics of them are conflating the acute lung injuries with the legally sold e-cigarettes. There is overlap between these twin crises, but in some cases they're distinct. But really, I think they're getting very little sympathy because they really haven't taken the steps to try to demonstrate that the products could be beneficial for adult smokers. What do you think happens next? Well, again, I, I think that it's very important for people in this space to make distinctions between these different problems, and they're interrelated. The solutions might be um, might cross over, but I think you're seeing a lot of uh, conflating of this in the marketplace right now. And we'll hear from the FDA commissioner today um, on the agency's view. I think the agency historically has taken the view that these products might have some redeeming public health value if they can help currently addicted adult smokers get off of tobacco. But I think we've gotten so far down the field of the dangers from these products, whether it's teen addiction to nicotine, to the legally sold products, or these acute lung injuries from what are probably illegal and maybe some, some legally sold and legally made products as well, that this opportunity um, may not be redeemable. Scott, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Everyone knows you can watch Squawk Box here on um, CNBC weekdays from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. Yes, you can. I think that's hyperbole. I think that, I mean, when Trump does it, you go nuts. Do you think everyone, know, do you think all eyes? I think know? everyone watching us knows that. 
So everyone so you were the speaking, people the that audience I'm speaking you were speaking to, to right but now. But as a statement, yes. many people, as many people know, as don't as all yourself, of you don't know. Don't tell yourself short, <laughs> Everybody you know. knows. As, Everybody knows. How about this? As, as some people know, you can watch. Uh, no, there are a lot. And, and the smartest, most, uh, most, influential. most influential people uh, know. They definitely know. But I digress. Now, now you can catch our content anytime on the Squawk Pod. We're launching a podcast. Can I um, catch up? And you can't see anything, right? Can I let myself Not visual? Can I let friend. myself go, sort of? On the you know, just eat what I want. Yeah, you don't have to suck it in for the podcast. Yeah, just, <laughs> and uh, what have you been doing? Eat, eat what you know. Not worry about you know fixing Make my toupee and everything. Uh, <laughs> You're going to hear interviews from our guests, special behind-the-scenes content, uh, and the latest headlines. Everything you expect from Squawk Box in a podcast. Look for us every day on CNBC.com slash podcasts on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Subscribe to Squawk Pod today. Please. Strong finish. Strong finish? You guys are good? Okay. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, Boeing will attempt to make amends to families of victims killed in the 737 MAX plane crashes. The company has launched a $50 million financial assistance fund. Its manager, Ken Feinberg, joins us next. What we're trying to do with these families in all of these foreign countries is explain to them there really are no hidden agendas here. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Phil Abo joins us right now. We've been watching everything that's been happening with Boeing and uh, what they do next after the crashes with the 737 MAX. Phil has uh, some, uh, some of the latest on what's been happening there. Phil, good morning. It's going to take a while for this to play out in terms of we know the planes are grounded. We know that they're in the process of trying to get the FAA and other regulators to recertify those planes, get them back in the air. But you've still got two crashes that are going to get a lot of attention, one earlier this year in Ethiopia and then one late last year in uh, Indonesia. Now, the company has set up a victim compensation fund. And what's noteworthy about this fund is that this week they said, here's how much money the company will be giving to the families of each of these victims. Now, they don't waive their right uh, to sue Boeing and pursue a lot more money in courts in the future. But here's what the fund basically comes down to. It sets up uh, an amount of money that each of the families of the victims are eligible. It comes out to $144,500 per victim. That's a total of just under $50 million that Boeing is setting aside for the families of those victims. By the way, they're also uh, directing another $50 million, Boeing is, to crash communities. And Ken Feinberg and his firm, uh, they're going to be overseeing the distribution of this cash. And Andrew, I know we're going to be talking with Ken in just a little bit. But a lot of questions have come up since the, uh, Boeing first announced this, Andrew. A lot of people saying, well, how did they come up with this amount? And should there be more than just 144500 uh, as part of this compensation fund? But we'll be seeing more of these questions play out over the weeks and months to come. 
Okay. Phil, thank you uh, for that. Uh, stick around just for a moment because we want to bring in uh, Ken Feinberg, who is one of the administrators of the Boeing Financial Assistance Fund. And uh, we're always thrilled to have you here and to, to talk about what's going on. But uh, tell us about how you got hired for this job and, and what you've done now. I received a telephone call from Boeing. Yeah. Boeing asked me and my colleague, who's been with me on all of these funds, Camille Byros, uh, the two of us, and uh, we were asked to design and administer an independent fund. We would decide who's eligible. We would decide how to distribute the funds, over what period of time. And over a relatively quick 45 days, we developed the program. And yesterday, we sent out, we began to send out right. the claim packets. And just to be clear, um, victims will, will, will get money and compensation, but they're not prevented from suing because oftentimes that's been the way these programs have been structured. That's right. BP or GM, they had to waive their right to sue. That's not this program. Right. This program, I'm instructed, this is $50 million to be distributed, has nothing to do with the litigation in Chicago or elsewhere. This is Boeing's um, offer to right. these families Does as Boeing a gift. Does Boeing say to you, this is how we want to do it, or do you say to Boeing, this is how I think you should do it? The latter. Camille Byros and I sit down with Boeing and say, if you're going to distribute these funds, for example... Don't start asking families how much they earned in, in Rwanda or Somalia. People died from 35 foreign countries on these two plane crash uh, accidents. So we advised Boeing, and Boeing said, you know, you guys know how to do this. You do it. You decide. We'll provide the money. Ken, you've done this so many times that it still comes down to the, the grim reality of trying to figure out how you value a life. Um, what do you do to someone who had a family with a lot of kids? What do you do to someone who um, maybe was young and, and, and had a mother or a father that they may have been supporting? How do you figure that out? How do you determine it? The same way courts and juries and judges and lawyers do every day in this country, usually it is based on financial need and how much you would have earned in a work life but for the accident. Here, simple. $50 million. 346 victims equals about $144,500, whether you were a, a lawyer in Rwanda or a worker or how whatever. Do you, how, do you figure out, how do you figure out who to pay if it's not clear-cut, if it wasn't someone who was married, had a spouse, had children, something along those lines? So there's a, a lot challenge. of complicated family it's structures. A, it's a real challenge. In a country, uh, let's just take Morocco. Well, what is the local estate law in Morocco? If somebody dies who's a resident, a uh, citizen of Morocco, mm -hmm. what does the law of Morocco say about survivors and wives and children and siblings? So we have had to go back in each of these 35 countries, and we have had to learn what does the estate law say? If somebody dies on these planes from Indonesia... What is the law of Indonesia? Even if it say? says it goes to the closest male relative, who may be a brother who's estranged from it, and not to the to the wife or the girlfriend who had the child or something. Those are the issues in India. We learn because the pilot was fr from the from India that the mother of the victim is entitled to like half of the estate. Hmm. So for thirty-five countries, this was the challenge. In the United States, we know the law in each state, but. When you're talking about foreign nations, and how do you make sure that $144,000 to a family in Rwanda, how do you make sure they're going to get the money? Right. Even if you decide, here's the person entitled to get the money, how do we protect 
those funds. And Boeing has been terrific in saying to Camille and myself, you guys figure this out. We'll give you the money. You will be the ones who can overcome these challenges. Phil, you had a question, too? Hi, Ken. Uh, Phil LeBeau here. You and I uh, talked extensively when the GM ignition uh, switch crisis was going on and the compensation fund was established there. In that case, I know that you talked with, you and Camille both talked with, a number of the families of victims and victims themselves who were not killed in ignition switch accidents. Did you talk to the families uh, in this case uh, with Boeing? And if you did, what did you hear back from them? Because all we've heard so far is some congressional testimony from a few uh, relatives who have said, look, this looks like a PR stunt to us. Uh, We don't think that Boeing has done enough or has been forthcoming enough. What have you heard back from the victims' families? We've talked to a few families, and we're continuing to meet with groups of families. Later this month in Washington, a whole group is coming uh, to see Camille and I from from, uh, Indonesia. But what you learn from the families in a case like this, skepticism. What does all this mean? Uh, We're getting all this money. We can continue to litigate with our lawyers in Chicago. This is separate. Uh, There are no strings. And I think like the 9-11 fund, Phil, you'll recall, it took a while for families to get a comfort level that this is on the up and up. And what we're trying to do with these families and the lawyers representing these families in all of these foreign countries is explain to them there really are no hidden agendas here. We're trying to get the money out. Boeing is pushing to get this money out separate from the litigation. There's a deadline of December 31st to get the claims in and process the claims, get the money out. So we're learning from the families, very emotional as usual. But we're trying to um, explain to them that um, this really is money that will have no impact on their right to go to court or seek other redress. Ken, one quick follow-up question, and then I know Andrew and Becky have a few more. But my last question would be this. Not to be indelicate about this, but there are more than a few people who have said, if these crashes had happened in the United States... The way this would play out would be far different, that the compensation fund would be far greater and that there would be a, a bigger price to pay, if you will, for Boeing. Do you believe that's the case? Do you believe that there would be a, a greater amount uh, per victim, so to speak, if these crashes had happened in the United States? Absolutely not. Don't forget, this is the key mentioned at the outset. The, these funds, $144,500, have nothing to do with families or lawyers seeking additional compensation in the courtroom. Just like in 9-11, you'll recall, people could opt out of our program and litigate if they want. General Motors, you covered it, Phil. If people didn't want this, they could go litigate. Mm -hmm. Here, this is money that that is separate and apart. I don't think it would make any difference if they were American citizens. It is a parallel program that allows family members to accept these funds and continue to go to court uh, in Chicago and uh, seek vastly additional sums if they want to do so. Okay. Uh, Ken, we've got to leave the conversation there. We are very appreciative of you being here uh, and uh, always come out and back. So. Thank you very much. 
Next on Squawk Pod, getting clean water to millions of people around the globe and making it more attractive for major corporations to join the cause. Anheuser-Busch InBev CEO Carlos Brito connecting beer money to philanthropy. But every time you connect a brand that's well-known, respected, trusted to a cause, you get consumers to act. That's next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. And Joe Biden. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Joe Cohen. Here's Joe. What I do. For more than 22 million people in 13 countries uh, so far have been helped by water.org. They've also partnered with some major uh, companies, including drink giant Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh, Join us now to discuss their partnership, Carlos Brito, CEO of Anheuser-Busch InBev, and Gary White, co-founder of water.org. Uh, and water equity, and it's uh, Gary. It's and Carlos. Thank, thank me for uh, joining us. But Gary, we this is uh, we talk about you know episodic TV. We've been following this with you and, and Matt yeah. Damon, the actor, and, mm-hmm. and the efforts uh, to uh, to make a dent in, in what's a global problem still, and that mm-hmm. is access uh, to clean water. Uh, and we, I think, last time Matt was on, we we had the the Stella partnership, and this yeah. is an extension of that and a continuation of that. Is, mm-hmm. is that? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is how we're reaching, you know, millions of people around the world. The partnership with Stella has reached uh, already 2 million people and we're well on our way to 3.5 million. Gary White teamed up with Academy Award winner and just general movie star Matt Damon in 2009 to found water.org. It's a nonprofit that brings safe water and sanitation to millions of people around the world. Now, the organization has since launched the Water Credit Initiative. That's a microfinancing solution to help poor populations meet their water supply needs. And they've also launched Water Equity, the world's first impact fund on the water crisis. Matt and Gary have joined Squawk Box many times over the years. And the first was back in 2014 when Matt Damon described how water became his cause. I was on a trip in 2006, and uh, it was about studying extreme poverty. And I ended up going on a, on a water collection with a 14-year-old girl, and she would have spent her entire day scavenging for water. She never would have been in school. If you can get clean water into a household, suddenly these kids will go back to school. What we're trying to do is kind of move beyond that, that traditional top-down charity model. There's never going to be enough charity in the world to solve this problem. Hopefully it's starting of a whole new trend uh, of trying to take something so basic as water and sanitation and match it to the capital market. Earlier this year in 2019, Matt and Gary were back on Squawk with an update. We have a partnership with Stella Artois, right. and what's exciting is that this matters, right, to consumers. And that's what, like, the, the difference between now and four years ago is you hear these companies talking about the ESG, they're talking about all this social responsibility. 
mm-hmm. they're not just saying it, yeah. right? Like they're, they're, their consumers are pushing them in, in this direction. It really is a success story about just nudging the markets towards the, the, the most vulnerable people. And it, and it mm-hmm. turns out they want to participate in their own solution. Now let's move to this morning when Gary and Carlos Brito, the CEO of Stella Artois' parent company, Anheuser-Busch InBev, joined Squawk Box. They had the latest news on their partnership. So many more people know about this crisis now and more importantly know how to help solve it. We should probably go back and talk about it again, but one out of nine people, I don't know if that if that helps. This, it, what's the total number? You've helped 22 million, which is a big number, yeah. but it's 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 scratching the surface. Sure. No, there's still a lot of people. I mean, about, about 800 million roughly that lack access to water, about 2.1 billion with access to sanitation, but what we're doing with, with Stella is we're creating a new model, helping people get access to water through finance, through microloans that they can afford, and then once you can do that, you can turn you know, the, the market capital loose on this. So the philanthropy that they provide basically corrects these market failures, helps us to accelerate access, and then bridge to, to market capital. And if I may add, I mean, what we saw with uh, this partnership is that every time you connect a brand that's well-known, respected, trusted, to a cause, you get consumers to act. Because a lot of people out there, they want to do good, they just don't know how and they don't trust a lot of the things they see. Mm-hmm. But when they see a trusted brand connected to a trusted organization, they feel, hey, why not? If I buy this chalice or this product, I'm helping somebody connect to water. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and after we connected, what they told us is that the number of people, especially young people that connected to the cause, mm-hmm. it went really um, up big time. So that's something that brands can do to help such cause. I mean, you can see the direct uh, effect of, of, of what you do with this. And I've, we, we had the discussion with an ESG uh, a money manager the other day. I said, why don't you just do something? You know, instead of you know, sort of dressing it all up and trying to induce yeah. people, just mm-hmm. tell them what you're doing. Maybe they get their money back. Maybe they get 2%. But uh, you've got people with microloans. You've got women or, or whoever gets the, is responsible for the clean water. They spend four hours a day getting access to clean water. They can't get educated. They can't go to school. They can't, can't be with their kids. They can't do the For 200 bucks. Mm-hmm. They can have a line run in there, and they all pay it back, too, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, this is the underlying asset that they're investing in, is, is loan portfolios, uh, people that repay them at 99%. And so if you can put together, with, like with water equity, uh, a fund that allows you to bridge the in- institutional investors, which I believe we'll be able to reach now as we get our returns up, institutional investors that get ESG with this. And this, there's ESG and there's ESG, right? ESG for a wind farm you know, somewhere out west is one thing. ESG for a woman who makes $2 a day and gets right. water. That's what we're doing with this next fund. I mean, wouldn't fun. people take... So. Return of their principal, or, or one or two percent, or, or what? I mean, bonds are they, they would, negative but, interest rates in Europe anyway. If you get your yeah. money back, you might, yeah. and you help someone yeah. in the process. They they would, but you still can't scale to the type of capital. This is a trillion dollar problem. Charity is yeah. never going to get us there, but charity can be the bridge to get us there to reach those institutional investors to really scale it up. I think what caught me, Carlos, is the idea that for three dollars and thirteen cents, which is how much you're going to donate for every one of these chalices that are bought that that can provide access to water for someone for five years? How does that work? Mm-hmm. Well, it's incredible because they have devised a system mm-hmm. with everything you just described. And you need some seed money to start the, the flywheel. Mm-hmm. But once the flywheel starts, because you give microcredit mm-hmm. to people that are good payers, they pay because that's the only credit they get because they don't, they're not bankable, mm-hmm. most of them. That's the same with our retailers. A lot of the retailers in emerging markets that we support and sell to 
They have no bank accounts, nothing. So the only source of credit is us. And 99% of them pay everything on the right day, on the right deadline, because that's the only source of loans that uh, they have. They're not bankable. So that's... Uh, well, keep us updated. We, we uh, as I say, it's episodic. We got to end this now, Carlos. Thank you, Gary. It's great to see you. And uh, I don't know where's where's uh, where's Bourne? Where's Jason? I think he's, he might be working at his day job right he's now. Always <laughs> yeah. he's working because I always think I, when I see him, and I think I can take him. I mean, I, you know what I mean? I mean, I see what he does in those movies. It's unbelievable. You know, he says no. What, what do you know? But he's Jason Bourne. He's Jason Bourne. That's the show for today, our first Squawk Pod. On our rundown tomorrow, Peloton goes public. Will the exercise equipment company let investors ride off into the sunset? Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Can I let myself go? Sort of? On the You know, just eat what I want. Yeah, you don't have to suck it in for the podcast. (laughs) Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. And we are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.